Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. I have entitled the morning's message, The Little Horn and the Final World Kingdom. And let's look at Daniel 7. Our text was 19 through 25. Let's go to verse 19. Daniel says, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces, trampled the residue with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on the head, and about the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, It will be different from the other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them and he shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change the times and the laws. And then the saints shall be given into his hands for a time and times and half a time. As we um, look back, turn to uh, verse 1 of chapter 7. Give me just a little bit of background as we dive into this. Um, Chapter 1, if you remember, was written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7, written in Aramaic, so we're finishing 7 today. Next week, we'll be going 8 through 12, and we go back to the Hebrew language. Now, this first section uh, of Daniel here, uh, the emphasis is placed upon not what has been, but what is going to be. Uh, To help have a better understanding of what I just said, um, chapter 7 is just like Daniel chapter 2. So I'm going to put a chart up on the board right now, and I'm going to walk through this. And we have the same thing being said, but we got two different symbols explaining the same thing. In Daniel 2, of course, we had this image metallic image made up of gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay. If you'll remember, the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 7, he's the lion. And it would have been the empire of Babylon, and the king would have been Nebuchadnezzar. The bear, or the arms of silver, in chapter 2, in chapter 7, it's going to be depicted as a bear. It's going to represent the Medo-Persian Empire. And that would have been under Darius. If you remember last week when Babylon fell, it said Darius took the kingdom being 62 years old. 
The third one in chapter 2 is the sides of brass, representing, uh, in chapter 7, a leopard. Uh, We have Greece in mind here. The leader would have been Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world by the age of 32. And the fourth one, almost for a thousand years, uh, we have the legs of iron, the feet of clay. Um, In 2 and 7, it is uh, a beast, and it is Rome as far as the nation, and the leaders would have been uh, the Caesars that came and went during that period of time. So as you look at chapter 7, you know, you sort of ask the question, you know, why, is, why does one have an animal and the other one have uh, Im- images of valuable metal? There's speculation, and I have speculation, but your speculation is just as good as my speculation, so I'll tell you why I think it is. I think chapter 2 is more of man's view of this world and his empire. Let me use Nebuchadnezzar as an example. When he was told that his kingdom would be overturned by one inferior to him, he didn't think much of it. And in defiance, he made an image of solid gold. And the Lord had to sort of cut him down to size. So man's view of worldly empires, remember when he said, is this not great Babylon that I have made for my great majesty? Well, that's man's perspective. And uh, we can have the same way that we look at maybe our achievements in, in the world and actually be proud of them. Man's perspective. But as you look at chapter 7, I think we sort of see it as from the Lord's perspective. These emperors, empires from Babylon to be to Persia to Greece to Rome, one thing they had in common was war, uh, dictatorship, um, really only concerned with... Um, Self, they were brutal, and uh, here we have them depicted as beasts rather than um, um, valuable pieces of gold. That's my two shekels worth, and if you want to agree with it, fine. (laughs) And if you don't, that's fine too. Uh, Let's dive into verse 1 as we like to study our Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I'll take verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions on his head while he was on his bed. Let me just stop there and say, this is already, uh, Belshazzar is already dead. And um, he died at the end of chapter 5. But here, we're not in a chronological order. It said that uh, I, Daniel, had visions, and I want you to notice that it's plural, not a single vision, but visions on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main thing. Visions suggest that the first three beasts are given in the first vision. The second vision concerns the fourth beast only. And the third vision is a scene of heaven, Therefore, there are actually three visions, and that's why it's plural there in verse 1, which are recorded here. Now, in verse 2, it says, Daniel saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, uh, 
the four winds of the heavens were stirring up the great sea, and the beast is going to come out of the sea. Now, this is where we need the help of the book of Revelation to give us understanding of what the sea is. What I'm going to quote right now is Revelation 17, 1, 15. The waters which you saw were the whore, the great whore of Babylon, and the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and tongues um, is here it's called the waters of the sea, and that's what she was sitting upon. Therefore, what we have in view here when it talks about the beast coming out of the sea is basically saying it's coming out of the population of the Gentile world. Uh, that would tie in with the explanation that we have in Revelation. Now, 3 and 4 um, tells us, or 4 tells us the, what the first beast is, and it's going to start with Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So verse 4 says, uh, the first was like a lion, and uh, had his eagle's wings, I watched till the wings were plucked off. And so it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on his two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now think back on Nebuchadnezzar. He is a head of gold, he's a lion. But what happened? Well, he took the credit, he took the glory for Babylon. And as he was doing, an angel cut him off at that point, and the Bible says he was given the heart of an animal, and he went around eating grass like a goat. The wings being plucked off here, I think, is a picture of his glory being taken away from him. And at the end of the time, seven years or whatever it was, when he came back to his senses, um, it says he stood up again like a man. So what we have in verse 4 here is simply a description of King Nebuchadnezzar um, losing his kingdom for a period of time, given the heart of an animal, but then when he came to his senses and he gave God the glory, well then he stood up and he had a man's heart again and he stood on his feet. So that would be four. When you get to five, we're now looking at, uh, well, look at the last verse of um, of chapter five. We find Belshazzar, king of Babylon, killed in 30, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So now we're moving from the Babylonian kingdom in one day to the Medo-Persian. So in verse 5, and suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to us, arise, devour much flesh. Now, what happened with the Medo-Persian Empire and their reign and the idea of this three ribs is this is exactly what happened in their conquest. In their world conquest, the three ribs in the mouth are three kingdoms that they conquered, uh, which would have been Babylon, Persia, and Egypt. And this drives the critics of the Bible crazy because it's so spot on. 
because that's exactly what happened with the Medo-Persians. But it even gets more specific when we look at verse 6 and we talk about um, the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great. We read in verse 6, And this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on his back four wings of a bird. Uh, The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, if you know your history, um, Alexander wept because he had conquered the known world by the age of 32. There was nothing more to conquer. And uh, he went into party mode, and he died at the age of 32. But before he died, the question was posed to him, who, who is the inheritor? Who gets it? And he said, give it to the strong. He had four generals. Cassander, who took Macedonia, uh, like Amacus, took Asia Minor, Seleucus took Syria, and Ptolemy took Egypt. These are, and this is in any history book, the four generals that were under the empire of Alexander the Great, and it was too great for one to handle what he had conquered, so it was divided up by these four generals. And again, the critics of the Bible, when they read stuff like this, and they say, you know, nobody can know this. And so it had to be written after the fact. Well, we have proof that it was written before the fact. And it's simply one of the greatest tools that we have as we look at this, and then we look at our Bible study this morning, I look back at these historical events being told before they happened, spot on, even to the number of the generals, the whole nine yards, it's all there. Now, when it, what we've done so far through the first six verses have talked about what has been. But now, beginning in verse 7, we're going to talk about the Roman Empire but it goes past the Roman Empire, and it talks about one that is forming as I speak this morning. I have every confidence that there will be a one-world order, a one-world government, and a one-world religion. Why? Because Daniel says so. And so it is Revelation, and I have the word of Jesus that says there's nothing in this universe that can change that from happening. Anybody want to say amen to that? This is a done deal, gang. What I just said is going to take place. And as as we get into this, let's read uh, uh, verse 7 about um, the Roman Empire and what's going to come out of the Roman Empire because after Alexander the Great... For almost a thousand years, Rome was a world-dominating empire. And there has not been a world empire since Rome. So let's read 7 and 8. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, Trampling the residue with its feet, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Well, 
the image had ten toes, remember? So now here, this has ten horns. Now, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn. So now we have eleven. That's coming, one that's coming out of the ten. Coming up among them, before whom three of the first were plucked out by the roots. So this horn coming out of the ten goes after three who evidently don't want to go along with him, so he takes care of them. And there in this horn, we find out it's a person, were like the eyes of a man in a mouth-speaking pompous words. So in seven and eight, what we have in view here is our attention is now directed to the ten horns. Notice that they do not represent a fifth kingdom, but they grow out of the fourth. So what was 2,000 years ago, the Bible is saying, out of that Roman Empire, someday in the future there's going to rise another one, but it comes from that one. Is everybody with me? And you say, well, how do you know that, Dwight? And I say, thank you for asking that question. And I'm going to have you turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. So just flip the page. Let me draw your attention to probably the greatest prophecy in the Bible, Daniel's 70th week. I'm not going to read 24 and 25, but I am interested in in verse 26. In verse 26, it actually talks about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and when he would come. As a matter of fact, to the very day he would come. And it tells us here that he's going to be cut off. I like to tell you that the Hebrew word there for cut off is karat. It literally means to be executed. So, you know, you try to share this with um, Orthodox Jewish people and say, well, you would do me a favor and just read with an open heart and an open mind, Daniel chapter 9, and just read it for what it says. And if you read it for what it says, it says the Messiah is going to be killed and executed but not for himself. So when Jesus came, he didn't die for himself. He died for me, and he died for you. Good place for an amen. That's the reason he came. And here Daniel is laying it out uh, before it comes. But then Jesus accuses Israel for not knowing the time of his coming. In Luke 19, He says, because you did not know the time of your visitation, this is what's going to happen. He says, your enemies are going to surround you. You're going to be encircled. And you're going to have an army come against you. There won't be one stone left upon another because you didn't know the time of your visitation. They should have known the book of Daniel. And uh, they didn't. And as a result... 38 years later in 70 AD, remember Rome is still in power, we read in the next verse in 26, it says, and the people, that's the Romans, of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So now we're talking about who it was that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Well, clearly it was the Romans. But why this verse is important is it tells us about this prince. 
and the people of the prince. So they're saying that there's a direct kinship, a meeting, that this man, when he comes, comes from out of what was the Roman Empire. Why is that important? Because when we get to verse 27, we have a gap of 2,000 years, which is common in the Old Testament. We pointed it out several times. Between verse 26 and 27, we have a gap of 2,000 years. Now, uh, it says, then he. Please underline the word he, um, because it's a reference back to verse 26, the prince. And it, it says, who is to come. That means he hasn't come yet. Future tense. So, right now we're living in the church age. The church age will come to an end at the rapture. When the rapture happens, um, the world, you know, how can you wrap your head around the disappearance of millions of people? To say that the world is going to be shocked is a total understatement. It'll be in total chaos. Second Thessalonians 2 says that um, God will send a strong delusion that they will believe the lie. And, you know, again, speculation. What is the lie that uh, is told that explains the disappearance of millions of people from planet Earth? I personally believe, again, my own personal speculation. We've been preconditioned, at least in my generation, uh, with everything from E.T. to um, um, Star Wars to Star Trek and, um, I mean, we're used to terminology like beam me up Scotty, right? And it's a part of our thinking. I read uh, just this last week in uh, somebody saying that um, uh, ETs have actually spoken to some of our presidents, explaining what's really going on. And when you guys get to that point where you can't handle it anymore, we're just going to have to intervene and get rid of the troublemakers, Have you noticed that all of a sudden the problem people in the world are Christians? We're the problem right now. And we're the ones that are these narrow-minded, bigoted, it's our way or nobody else's way. And you know what? That's exactly what we preach. That Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth and the life, and there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Well, that's pretty narrow-minded and bigoted. Doesn't sound very loving to me. No, but it's the truth. And Jesus said these, these days would come. So what is the lie? Well, my guess is probably one of these ETs that's been here all along and simply now says, okay, we'll let the cat out of the bag. We'll tell you what's been going on since we planted you guys here 6,000 years ago or whatever. Or they'll probably say longer than that. And um, we can't let you destroy yourself, so we have to intervene. That's just my two shekels worth again. So what we have, with such a catastrophe of the rapture, 27, then he, this is a reference to the Antichrist. He will make a peace treaty, a covenant with many for one week. Now who and what is the subject matter here and who is he talking to? You have to go back to verse 24. When Gabriel speaks to Daniel, it says, 490 years is going to be for your people. So we're talking about Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem in particular. And it has to be seven years. 
And this is one of the strongest arguments for a pre-trib rapture. You have to have seven years. If you put the church in any of the seven-year period of time, you're, you're doing violation to Daniel 9, verse 24, because there has to be seven years that's just for Israel. And so we get down, the very first thing that happens with this covenant is a peace treaty, but then the he there goes back to the prince who's from the Roman Empire. So when you read books like the Islamic Antichrist, all I can say is they've never read Daniel 9, or they got a poor understanding of um, Ezekiel 38 and other scriptures that just common sense um, tells me that this man has to be Jewish. And there's a lot of uh, Jews that live in Europe. So for for him, yes, they're waiting for their um, their Christ to come too, but it just doesn't add up. So anyway, verse 27, he will confirm a covenant with many for one, one week, that's seven years. In the middle of the week, he'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Jesus verifies this in Matthew 24. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Whoever reads, let him understand. In parentheses, you know what that tells me? You have to study the Bible. They weren't. And Jesus actually said to him, you missed it, Israel, because you didn't know the time. Daniel told you the time, but you weren't studying the Bible. Daniel was. If you read the first verse of Daniel 1, verse 2, he says, I understood. I, Daniel, understood by the the books, the number of years specified by the word of the Lord. Daniel was a student of prophecy. The church has got to get back to the Bible. It has to get back to prioritizing prophecy because prophecy is unfolding at a rate that is happening so fast I can't keep up with it because it's happening so fast every single day. And when we look at this here, we're told that um, uh, the church is gone. At this time. Here's another reason I believe the church is gone. God always leaves a witness. Old Testament, it was Israel. New Testament, it was the church. When the church is raptured, two witnesses show up. They have a ministry. Revelation 11, I was all psyched. I was pumped on Wednesday night to do 10 and 11 of Revelation and some tornado wrecked my Bible study. Took all the power out at the church. Couldn't do anything about it. But I'm waiting for Wednesday because that's where we're going to be at. But I'll tell you what we're going to read in Revelation 11. It tells us that these two witnesses that come, we know for sure it's Elijah. It's the last thing the Old Testament says. But more importantly, it tells us how long their ministry lasts for before they're killed by the Antichrist. 1,260 days. How long is that? Exactly three and a half years. How much is three and a half and three and a half? Seven. In the middle of the week, in the middle of seven, he breaks the covenant and commits the abomination of desolation. And who is it? He comes out of uh, the revived Roman Empire. He is the prince who is to come. I believe he's alive today. I don't know if he's aware of uh, his position. 
I know that uh, he'll be mortally wounded, according to Revelation 13. We'll be there in just a little bit. He comes back to life. And from there on, he knows he has a short time. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself, and I did it in the first study, and I don't want to do it in the second study. So um, let's go back to, I want to show you phraseologies that occur only in Daniel and only in Revelation. So if you're in Daniel chapter 7, please look at verse um, 25. And it says, uh, he shall, the Antichrist shall intend it, change the times and the seasons. And then the saints will be given into his hands for a time and a time and a half a times. Now, go to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. I told you that the two witnesses are in the first half of the tribulation period. Their ministry is for three and a half years. Now we're, we read that um, this Antichrist not only be pompous, uh, he'll persecute the saints of the Most High, um, then the saints will be given into the Antichrist's hands. And then it tells us for a time and a time and half a times. That same wording, word for word, if you go to Revelation chapter 12, there's war in heaven. What I tell people that the devil's in heaven, they go, what? And I go, yeah, the devil's in heaven. What's he doing there? Well, the Bible says... Um, in verse 10, that he accused them day and night before our God, and he was cast down. He doesn't like you one bit. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. He, the Bible says he has come but to steal, to kill, and destroy, especially God's people, but more importantly, especially Israel. Israel and destroying Israel is the only card that he's got to play I'm not worried about it at all. I've read the end of the book, and I know exactly how this movie ends. You ever sitting in a movie and you're really not that excited about it because you've seen it ten times before? And you, know, you know that John Wayne is going to ride off with the girl at the end of the movie? You know it because you've been there and you've seen it. Well, that's what reading God's word is all about. But here, once he's kicked out of heaven, now he's on the earth. And we read in verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. Well, the next couple of verses tells us how much of a short time he has. When the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth to, to persecute the woman who gave birth to the male child, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into a the wilderness to her place. I'll come back to that. Where she is nourished for what? A time, singular, one year, times plural, two years, and a half a time. Two plus one plus a half is three and a half years where Israel is protected in her place. Now, Judy was listening to, um, I came in yesterday, she was had the radio on, she was listening to Jimmy DeYoung who was in Israel broadcasting, and they were talking about Petra. 
And he was explaining that Petra is a place sometimes called um, uh, Basra or Selah. It has different names. It's in Jordan. And I've, I've been there several times. And this is the place where the Lord is going to supernaturally protect the remnant, the one-third. He can't get to them because God protects them. So the devil goes and makes war with the rest of um, the woman. Verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there's the second half of the tribulation. Three and a half and three and a half, you have the seven years. Chapter 12 and 13 happen to be right in the very, very middle of this tribulation period. Okay, a little side track here, a um, little rabbit trail. I'm going to have you turn to Revelation 2 to the church of Pergamos. And while you're turning, I'm going to read a track that Barry came out with a couple of years back. It's called A Throne in Europe. And you find yourself, uh, Revelation 2, verse 12, and I'll come back to Pergamos. Um, I'm quoting from Mary's track here. The international magazine, The Economist, ran an article earlier this year called Charlemagne, and then there was one, stating that today Germany, the heir apparent of the Holy Roman Empire, is alone on top of the EU power pole. So today... Here is how things are lining up. Today, the EU is ruled politically from Berlin. Now, I'm going to make a point of Berlin in just a second here. Today, EU is ruled financially from Frankfurt headquarters of the Euro Central Bank. So it's being ruled from Berlin. Now, one particular rabbit trail that really struck with me this week was this. In the ancient Greek city of Pergamos, there was a temple to the Greek god Zeus. I'm going to take you to Pergamos before I read any farther. I'm going to show you two pictures of Pergamos. And here's the first one. These are the ruins. They had one of the greatest libraries in the world. Uh, the next one is of the amphitheater. This totally amazed me because of the sheer um, steep, steepness of it, but it was a very, very large city. Now, I'm going to continue on reading before I put on the next slide. The focal point of Pergamos was a massive um, temple uh, to the Greek god Zeus. Now, Carl Hermann, a German archaeologist, in 1878 removed this temple that I'm going to show you right now. This is the temple that was at Pergamos. They took it apart stone by stone, and they moved it to Berlin. So that Pergamos's uh, temple that was in Pergamos now is in Berlin, and today Berlin is ruled politically, the EU is ruled politically from um, Berlin. 
Remember, this took place at the beginning of the rise of the Persian Empire, which was known as the Iron Kingdom. And now, if you're in, um, and now if you're in Revelation two, I'm reading verses twelve and thirteen. The Lord says to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write. These things says he which has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell. Even where Satan's seat is, and you hold this fast my name and have not denied my faith. Even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwells. So in other words, when this was being written, the temple that you're looking at right there was in Pergamos. But I'm going to back up just a step here, and I want to trace um, Satan's moving around this planet. I'm quoting now from an old Assembly of God minister named Frank Boyd in his books called Studies in Revelation. It's only a paragraph, and I'm quoting him. The significance of the expression Satan's throne is discovered here in the history of the Babylonian mysticism. Sufficient to say here that Babylon from the days of Nimrod was an earthly focal point of Satan's system of religion. The Babylonian priest fleeing before the conquering Persians. Now let's just stop right here. This is why we teach chapter by chapter or verse by verse through the Bible. This will make sense to you now. How long did it take Babylon to fall? One night, right? The writing on the wall, you're over. And that same night, Darius, being 62 years old, took over. What happened to the people? Well, according to Boyd, he said, the priests, the Babylonian priests, they took off from the conquering Persians, and they took refuge and settled in Pergamos. So all occultic activity that started in Babylon with the pagan priests, now these guys move and they end up in Pergamos, where Satan's seat now is. Meaning before it was there, it was in Babylon. Their worship consisted of the deification of the emperor, Atticus III, the king of Pergamos, in 133 BC, was also priest of this cult and willed his title to the hands of the Romans. The title of the Babylonian high priest was Pontifus Maximus. What that means? Chief bridge builder, meaning the one who spans the gap between mortals and Satan and his host. Question, is it possible to build a bridge and make connection with mortals and demons. What I didn't show you on this, I'm going to put up next what's part of a a close-up of of a pair of angels wrestling. And um, this is part of the structure of the temple. That is what we refer to as, from Genesis 4, Nephilim. And when I said that, some of you got worried because you don't hold the view that Nephilim exists. There's two lines of thought of Genesis 4. Let me read the verse, and you can, um, uh, we can discuss it 
later if you want to. Just don't send me emails, face-to-face stuff. Okay, Genesis 6-4 says this. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God, that's an important term, sons of God, came unto the daughters of men, and evidently had relations with them. They bare children to them, and they became the mighty men of renown of old. The wording, Nephilim. Now, my argument for this is, and the question is, are you saying that fallen angels actually inner had sex with women and the offspring was something that wasn't natural? And my answer to that is yes. If you would turn to, um, you don't have to, in Job chapter 1, when the sons of God came and presented themselves to the Lord, remember it says Lucifer was there too? It's the same Hebrew word, guys. Sons of God in Job 1 is the same sons of God in Genesis chapter 4. And then it says, after the flood, there was only eight survivors, right? But it also says there was giants after the flood. Well, how did that happen? Well, giants are, these guys were not only all human, but they were also demonic. And demons can't die. The Bible says that hell was created for the devil and his angels because they are eternal. Goliath was a giant. Numbers 13.33, it says, they saw the giants, the descendants of Enoch, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our sight, so we were in their sight. Raphium is the word there. Deuteronomy 2.20, in a reference to giants, that were also regarded as the land of the giants, formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites called them, I don't know if I can pronounce this, Zamzumian, which literally means nations of giants. So the question in this, on this here, and uh, this being Satan's throne, he's just got some of his boys up there as, I think, artwork. And um, um, let me get back to Mary's track here and see if we can connect all these dots. I'm going to leave that. She says, and the very same empire from Nebuchadnezzar's image were, are in the news today. Babylon is Iraq. Um, the Medes were known by the ancients as Aryans or Iran, um, which was formerly Persia for centuries. And it was uh, renamed Iran or Iran by the Nazis. The Greeks are bringing down the global economic economy as we speak, and the Holy Roman Empire, or the Fourth Reich, is taking shape in Europe. So she asks the question, how late is it anyway? We see the rise of of what's going to happen. We know that there's going to be ten nations that will arise that will be overseen by this pompous one. And um, uh, we need to go back to Daniel 2 to make our next connection with, with um, Daniel 2, verse 45. 
concerning all these kingdoms that we just went through. Starting with Babylon, Medo-Persian, Grecian, Roman. And then the one that hasn't happened yet is going to happen. Now I'm going to take it a step past that so we get the full picture of at the end of he knows he has a short time when he's cast out in three and a half years. Well, then what? Well, remember in the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, there was a stone. It came from nowhere. And it took and it hit the image, and the image became like dust, and whoosh, it was blown away. And in its place, the stone that came out, cut without hands, became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. And I'll read verse, picking it up in verse 44. It says, in the days of these kings, what kings? We have the kings of the, the kingdom that's coming. The, the revived Roman Empire that will quickly develop when the rapture occurs. In the days of these kings, these ten kings will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and the kingdom will not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever, and that's a place for an amen, a good hearty one. In contrast to all these other ones, inasmuch as you saw the stone was cast out of the mountain without hands, and that it was broken pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. And I like what Daniel ends here. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. It's going to happen. Jesus said, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but not my words. So this is a done deal. And what it should do with all the pressure that everybody's under today, nobody has enough time, or am I the only one? <laughs> You know, it is a pressure quick, pressure cooker world. There's always stuff that needs to get done. And unless I have my priorities straight, and that's being here, teaching this book, and it's you being here, making it your custom, so that once again you go, oh yeah, that's why I'm following the Lord. And making sure that my job doesn't take preeminence over my love for the Lord. I told the first service, you know, the Lord's really not all that concerned about you're serving him, even though I'll make a point of that later. But he's more concerned about you being a bride than an employee. You see, you're his bride. So he's more interested in a relationship than in your workmanship. He wants your workmanship. We're to occupy. We're to be about our father's business. Amen? But he told the church of Ephesus, listen up, Ephesus. You got, you got it all going. You got works, patience, faith. You're up against false doctrine. Good for you. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Well, you didn't lose it. You left it. And he says, unless you get back to your first love, I'm out of here. I'm wondering how many churches there are in the United States today where they're there every Sunday and they're not aware that the Lord has left the church. When you read the last day church of Laodicea, which I believe is the church of the last days, what's the last thing it says? It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. We use that as a witnessing tool. But that's not what, in context, that's not what it's about. He's talking to a church. 
He's on the outside trying to get in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear, then open, and I'll come back in with you. So I know you know these things, but like Paul says, we need to be reminded where our priorities must be. And on Father's Day, dads, I would say this to you. There's no important thing that you can do than watching your children um, doing your devotions, praying in the morning, praying with them at night. Train up a child in the way he'll go, and um, when he's old, he will not depart from it. It's your most important job. They, that they see that they see that you really do love Jesus. And um, they'll catch on to it. Oh, Dwight, don't go there. I can't help it. You know you're going to do it. Do it anyway. They have this program on TV where they have people just doing stupid, crazy stuff. I forget what they call it. But they had this four-year-old girl on there, and I don't know if anybody caught her. She's cute as a button. Four years old. And she, she comes out, and she's asking questions. And uh, all of a sudden, she goes into one of her little temper tantrums. And she's going, well, my, this and that. And you don't think you should have that, but I do. And she doesn't, but I do. And I'm watching this little girl losing her temper. And I thought, I wonder where she learned all that stuff from. She was just watching mom. She was just imitating her mother. She was too young to pick it up by herself. I thought it was the cutest thing, but I thought I sure wouldn't be wanting to be married to her mother. Because <laughs> I knew exactly where that was coming from. But moms and dads, dads are watching you. You are the head of the house. Act like it. Lead. And, um, and show, and don't compromise in this area. Seek first the kingdom and let your kids see you do it. And live it out on the job so that they can... They can see it too. I like to tell a story about an old friend and second service, so I'll do it. Uh, I went to buy carpet when we were buying this carpet here. At that time, he was one of the elders in the church, and and, uh, his name was Dave, and he worked putting in carpet for this guy, and he was always witnessing. So I thought, well, we'll buy the church carpet. That's where David works. We'll go down there. So I'm talking to the boss, and uh, we're working out a deal on the carpet. And um, um, I said, yeah, you know, you know Dave, he works here. Yeah, I know Dave. <laughs> and I knew where he was going because David's always talking about the Lord. He said, Dave would not be with us right now because he's always telling people about Jesus. But he's the best worker I got, and I can't let him go. So he was being a witness because of his work ethic. And he says, I love to fire the guy because I can't stand him talking about Jesus all the time. But I can't. He's my best worker. And that's the way it should be for every Christian. They said, "Uh, I can't handle this Jesus stuff, but he's the best guy I got working on the crew. And that should be our witness. And that uh, you let your, your light so shine, what does that mean? That you can be trusted, I remember uh, my my best friend who died outside of the Lord. Um, He owned the Magnet in Oshkosh. He owned uh, the Good Company up here. I think his brothers still do. And because he was my best friend at one time, um, 
we met at the good company. And I shared with them for one hour straight. And after one hour straight of me sharing with my buddy, uh, his name was Larry, uh, he just looked at me and he said, uh, after pouring my heart out to this guy about getting saved, he says, Dwight, would you consider managing the good company for me? (laughs) He didn't hear a word I said. He only knew that he could trust me and I wouldn't have my hand in a till. And that's all he was concerned about. And um, I thought it would, I didn't, I didn't think it was a good idea. Anyway, I, was, I said, Larry, you didn't hear a word I said. And I can't remember what he said back then. But people know who you are. And um, the idea of letting your light show in that, in that setting. All right, I'm getting too, too far past where I want to go right now. Um, what is the fate? Where does this all shake out in the end? Let's look at um, Daniel 7, verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. The end result of the Antichrist that can't be changed is he is going to end up in the lake of fire Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 20. As we connect, I want to connect the dots as often as I can. Draw your attention to verse 10 of Revelation 20. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So I'll go to chapter 13 now of uh, Revelation. Uh, Verse 12 tells us in Daniel 7. Let's just go to Revelation 13, picking it up with verse 1 through 7. This is who we have in view. Revelation 13, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head blasphemous names. Now the beast, which I saw was like a leopard, feet like a bear, and a mouth like a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Sound familiar? A lion. We have, first of all, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Sound familiar? What's different about him? Reverse order. The question is why? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> Again, speculation. Is it because we're looking back at it and from the future and looking back at it and from their vantage point, it's forward? Makes sense, but I really don't know. But I do know that tied into the beast in this fourth one is a picture of the Antichrist, but it's going to be also these ten horns. And we read here, the dragon gave him his powers, so and great authority. Well, the dragon is uh, symbolism, but if you look at chapter 12, verse 9, it tells us who the dragon is. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So who is the dragon? The dragon is the devil. How do we know? The Bible clearly tells us. Oh, you can't understand the book of Revelation. It's got too many symbolisms in it. Yeah, a lot of symbolism always explains the symbolism. 
I saw one of his heads that it had been mortally wounded. This would be the little horn. And a deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon, the devil, who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with them. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for how long? Forty-two months, or three and a half years. And he opened his mouth and he blasphemed God and his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Well, that's what it says in Daniel 7, that they, the saints will be overcome. Now, this is where some people get confused when they read the book of Revelation, and it says saints, and they just assume it's referring to the church. No, there are tribulation saints. There are going to be people who are going to get saved from Judaism by the two witnesses, and now they are called saints in the same way that you and I are called saints today. Did you know that you're a saint? You know, uh, Roman Catholicism, you have to have so many signs and wonders and miracles, and then you get made a saint, like Mother Teresa, who, by the way, said she's not sure if she really believes in Jesus. I bet she'd never heard that one before. But she's, she's one of the saints, and that's not what the Bible teaches about sainthood. When you become a Christian, you become a saint. And the saints referred to here that are overcome are tribulation saints. So don't make the mistake of saying, well, it says saints, so the church is in this period of time. No, saints are saints as long as they're um, believers in, in Jesus. So I'm going to begin to wrap this up here with a quote from McGee that I'm quoting it because he makes a statement of how important it is to study the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, especially Daniel and Revelation. So I'm quoting Mr. McGee. At the time of the writing of John, much of the prophecies of Daniel have been fulfilled. The first three beasts, Babylon, the lion, Medo-Persia, the bear, Greek, um, the leopard, had all been fulfilled. When Daniel gave it, it was a prophecy but it was fulfilled by John's time. Therefore, John centers on the fourth beast and upon the little horn because the fourth beast, the Roman Empire, had appeared. John was living in the time of the Roman Empire. Having been exiled to the island of Patmos by the Roman Emperor Domitian, already signs of weakness and decay were visible in the empire, and John was a spectator to that which was still future in Daniel's day. However, In the book of Revelation, the emphasis is upon the rule of the little horn of Daniel 7. And the little horn is set before us as a wild beast, for he is now ruling and controlling the restored Roman Empire in John's prophecy. The little horn of Daniel 7 and the wild beast of Revelation 13 are identical. You can see that an understanding of Daniel 7 would be basic to understanding this passage and why it's important to teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse. 
If you look at uh, Revelation 13, verse 15, uh, just wait. Um, the fate of, of uh, the tribulation saints, they still go to heaven, but read verse 15 where it says that, again, the image that goes back to Daniel, if you didn't bow down to the image, he caused the image to speak, and if you didn't worship the image of the beast, you would be killed. So the fate of the tribulation saints is that they are killed. But in Daniel 7, verse 22, if you'll quick, I know we're doing flipping back and forth. 7.22 tells us, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailed against them. And then we have the word until. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. What is our fate and the fate of those saints? Well, they're going to inherit the kingdom that's going to um, continue in contrast to the other ones forever and ever and ever. So this kingdom, uh, 26 and 27, we'll, we'll finish out because we want to read the whole chapter. Daniel 7, the last place we left off is verse 26. It says, but the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy forever. That's the Antichrist. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. I love this part. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve him and obey him. This is the end of the account, and as for me, Daniel, my thoughts troubled me greatly, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Can you imagine having a vision like this, and not having a cedron headache? It's just, 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 just amazing. All right, let's make it practical as we have returned to Luke chapter 19, and let's have a practical practical application as we leave uh, this week. We know that the hour is late and um, in this parable here we know that our priority is loving the Lord first over serving him but we serve him because we love him. Isn't that what Paul said? Paul said some preach the gospel for this reason or that reason, or they're charlatans or they're on the take. He says, but me out of a pure heart. He says, the love of Christ constrains me. I can't help but talk about Jesus. Why? Because I love Jesus. And so that should be the case here. We have two people who love Jesus here and then one who doesn't know the Lord. So let's read it. Verse 11, it's a parable of the 10 minus. I call them 10 dollars. Now as he heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a country to receive for himself a kingdom. You see, the disciples didn't know 
that it would be 2,000 years. They were living every day as if the Lord was coming. But they actually thought, now the kingdom has come. So the Lord's breaking the news to them. No, it's like a man going away for a long time. And, um, and then he's going to return. Verse 13, so he called 10 of his servants and delivered to them $10 and said to them, occupy till I come or do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man rule over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, this is what we just read in Daniel. He's back. It's an everlasting kingdom. Now that he's received the kingdom, now he's delegating. And so he returned. He went to the one who had given money, and um, he wanted to know how much, what they've been doing since he's been gone. Verse 16. The first came and said, Master, your dollar has earned ten. And he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a very little have authority over ten cities. And the second saying, Master, you gave me five. Um, The one you gave me earned five. Likewise, he said, you also will be over five cities. I actually take this literally because one of the promises to the churches is that we're going to rule and reign as kings and priests. And a whole new world that I imagine is going to need some structure to it And the way I read this is that you have an oversight position in the kingdom age. Another came to him and said, Master, here's your dollar. I kept it away in a handkerchief for I feared you because, you know, you're a mean guy. Uh, You collect what you do not deposit and reap what you do not sow. Gee, that's not the Savior I know. The Jesus I know said, come and learn of me. I'm lowly and meek in heart and spirit, and you'll find rest for your soul. This guy is not in the loop. He doesn't know the Lord. And he said, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. In other words, he heard the message, but he chose to reject it. I'm going to say that again. He heard the message, but he chose to reject it. He says, why didn't you put the money in the bank that at my coming I might collect it with interest? And he said to those who stood by him, take the dollar that he has and give it to the guy who has 10. And they said to a master, he's already got 10. And the Lord said, I say to you that to everyone who has will be given to him who does not have will be taken away. But bring those enemies of mine here who did not want to reign, me reign over them and slay them before me. In men's prayer yesterday, And I'll close with this. And I know I said I'll close with this twice already. I'll close with this. We finished the book of Acts. And um, when the Lord says, when you see these things begin to happen, do what? Lift up your heads and pray for your redemption draws nigh. So much more as you see the day approaching. Just three verses here. We finished Acts with... uh, with uh, these words. Um, There were those who were listening to Paul and they didn't know what to think, so they said, but we desire to hear from you what you think, for we've we've heard about this sect, meaning Christians, and we know that 
they're spoken against everywhere. Everybody's talking about these the sect Christians. So Paul says, so when they had appointed a day, many came to him at his house, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God. In other words, he gave them the gospel, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Don't ever accuse me again of going over my time. Okay, final verse. And some were persuaded by the things which he's spoken, and some disbelieved. Persuading. That means I have a free will. That means when the, all these guys that were given responsibility, one of them said, I don't want to hear it. I don't want, what did it say? I don't want anybody ruling over us. You and I are praying for people right now. You've talked to them. You've shared the gospel with them. You're trying to persuade them. And if you were anything like me when I was thinking this through in my witness, being witnessed two days, I said, I'm way too much of a free spirit to have anybody ruling and reigning over me. I just didn't understand that I can't be boss anymore. John 3 says people don't come to the light because they love the darkness more than the light. They like their sin. I don't want to stop sinning. I like to keep sinning. Well, here's the problem with that. You're going to have to die someday and give an account. Well, you've heard the gospel. But having heard the gospel, have you been persuaded? And I'll leave you with this question. Are you rapture ready? What do you mean by that, Dwight? Well, you may have heard the gospel, but do you know in your heart of hearts that it's a relationship and that what the Lord is looking for is, well done, good and faithful servant. My sheep hear my voice. Do you know his voice? I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable right now or try to twist your arm. I'm just trying to present truth that um, there will be people that will stand before Jesus that are going to be shocked when he says, depart from me, I don't know you. Lord, we did this, we did this, we did this. He says, yeah, but I never knew you. Depart from me just like this guy and slay him. And that's going to happen to people today who actually think they're Christians. And I don't want that to happen to you. So in closing this morning, If you're not 100% sure, I'm going to lead you in a prayer that um, if you're not sure that you can pray Um, or you can come and pray with the pastors that we'll have up here afterwards this morning. And those watching live stream, I encourage you in the quiet of your own heart or maybe if you're here this morning, you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let me tell you this. It's not what you say. It's what's from here. You know the sinner's prayer that the guy, the thief on the cross was? Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. That was the sinner's prayer. But it was from here. It wasn't from here. And so as we close up this morning, we make our way through God's word. We just finished Daniel 7, next week Daniel 8, back into the Hebrew. Let's stand, we'll close 
in a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you as we see just how awesome your word really is. And as we study world history and we see Babylon come and go, Medo-Persia come and go, Greece come and go, Rome come and go, we have great certainty that there will arise a man after we're taken out who will be a world ruler, who will demand people to worship him or die. I'm certain that's going to happen. I'm also certain that there's only one way to heaven, not many ways, and that you are the only way. And if there's anyone here this morning that believes perhaps they can get into eternity by good works or by believing that there's some other religion, I pray, Lord, that um, your word would open their heart to the simplicity. And just as Paul sought to persuade from morning till evening. There will be those who will be persuaded and believe, and there will be some who will harden their heart and say no. But for those who are ready to receive Jesus this morning, pray this in your heart to him. O God, I know that I am a sinner and I'm sinned against you. Lord, I am sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. I want to turn from my sins, so I receive you, Jesus Christ, as my Lord and Savior. And I confess him in my heart before you, who are listening right now, as my Lord. From now on, I want to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, Amen.